This is Guns and Butter. Strategists in uh, Israeli and U.S. circles call an Iranian land bridge. What they mean by an Iranian land bridge is they are very worried about the infrastructural links and integration between Tehran and effectively the Mediterranean, whether it's Beirut or Banyas or Latakia. But that is to say, road, rail, communications, oil and gas pipelines, that whole the whole thing there, which includes defence collaboration, and that would mean a very strengthened so-called axis of resistance up against the borders of Palestine, and that, that is what the Israelis, of course, see as a great threat. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Tim Anderson. Today's show, The End Game in the Middle East. Dr. Tim Anderson is director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies. He was for 20 years an academic in political economy at the University of Sydney, and before that, taught at several other Australian universities. He researches and writes on development, rights, and self-determination in Latin America, the Asia-Pacific, and the Middle East. He has published many dozens of articles in a range of academic books and journals. Recent books include Land and Livelihoods in Papua New Guinea, The Dirty War on Syria, and Countering War Propaganda of the Dirty War on Syria. Today we discuss his new book, Axis of Resistance Towards an Independent Middle East. Tim Anderson, welcome. Thanks very much. The major sections of your new book, Axis of Resistance Towards an Independent Middle East, are Imperialism and Resistance, Collapse of the Dirty War on Syria, and the West Asian Alliance. You began your new book with a photograph of military leaders of Iran, Iraq, and Syria taken in Damascus in March 2019. What makes this event significant? Yes, I think uh, what makes it significant is that the wars on all of those countries have helped bring together countries in a way that is completely contrary to the uh, the rationale for the wars. Remember, the ever since the Iranian Revolution, for example, Washington has tried to set Iraq against Iran. After the invasion of Iran, um, they created uh, a group called Al-Qaeda in Iraq or ISI, which later became ISIS or Daesh. The aim of that was precisely to stop close relationships developing between Baghdad and Iran. And this has been the obsession of the plan, which the Bush administration called the New Middle East, was to divide up all the divide up or smash or destroy or divide up or balkanize all of the independent states of the region, so that the U.S. could dominate a region full of freedom and democracy and so on, with their major allies Israel and Saudi Arabia. That was the grand plan in a way, but it's backfired because although the wars have been very costly, they have brought those players together, and so the close relationship between Iraq and Iran and Iraq, Iran, and Syria is something of a nightmare for the big plans that Washington had for the Middle East. You write that Washington's aim was to create a new Middle East. What was this new Middle East supposed to look like, and what was driving this creative destruction? 
Yes, well, you correctly picked out that little phrase, creative destruction, which was talked about by Condoleezza Rice, if you remember her, when she was Secretary of State to Bush II. And indeed, in Tel Aviv, I think it was that she, while she was on a tour of the region, she mentioned this concept of the new Middle East, uh, just as the Israelis effectively got the green light to invade Lebanon once again. Uh, well, that one didn't work out so well because Hezbollah effectively prevented Israel from achieving any of its goals. That was to destroy the weaponry of Hezbollah, to destroy Hezbollah's structure and so on, and therefore have a very weak and compliant Lebanon on their borders, if not annexing large parts of Lebanon, as they had tried to do in the past. So the New Middle East was conceived as a bigger plan because, of course, it was spoken of in those years after it seemed as though the US had gained control of Iraq. And indeed, they did destroy uh, the governmental, administrative, and much of the civil infrastructure of Iraq and weakened the body politic for a long time. But since about that time, or soon after that time, um, the political will came back into the Iraqi system and we saw successive Iraqi administrations, for example, opposing the, the wholesale privatization of their oil assets to US companies, wanting to create security relationships with their neighbors, wanting better relations with Syria, better relations with Iran. And so that led to a whole new round of destabilization in Iraq. But the idea that was there, I suppose, was that they would all be very weak regimes like a, uh, a compliant regimes like the Gulf monarchies, for example, like Jordan, perhaps like Lebanon before it gained a bit of um, political will in the 21st century, largely due to the resistance to Israel by Hezbollah. So they wanted a lot of very weak states. Perhaps uh, perhaps the, the Balkanization or the federalization of Iraq, well, Iraq is now a federal state. They wanted to break up Syria if they couldn't control Damascus. They wanted to break it up into Sunni areas and Alawi areas and so on. That was the, the, the grand plan. It's the plan of any empire to, to divide and weaken and control their, their enemies. In this case, the independent states of the region, the one that didn't fit into the regional plan. Well, how would you characterize empires and imperialism? You've already touched on that. You, you write that there are common traditional features. Yes, my starting point is not where a lot of uh, left starting points are, saying that imperialism from Lenin is some sort of extension of monopoly capitalism. Um, of course, the the corporate world conditions the form of all power relations these days, but empires have existed for many thousands of years, and we know they have been in the past, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, projects, political projects to dominate entire regions with the aim of excluding potential competitors, uh, potential other powers. Not to say those other powers are necessarily empires in themselves, but every empire is paranoid about the, the next power that's going to replace them. And I think that's why we we can look at the obsession that Washington has with, and not, I'm not just talking about the Trump regime here, but the administration. It was, after all, the Congress against Trump's wishes that imposed a new round of sanctions on Russia. I think that's why there's that enormous preoccupation with Russia and with China, and to some extent, an independent Europe, really, because the US has never wanted an independent Europe. It wanted to maintain its bases in Europe, as in the Middle East, as in East Asia. In part one, imperialism and resistance, you write that Washington's 
21st century wars in West Asia have been conducted in the name of a new Middle East, and that plan has been to subjugate the entire region, but that resistance forces are prevailing. How would you characterize these resistance forces? Resistance in this sense, I take to mean resistance to imperialism, resistance to colonialism or neocolonialism. Um, you see, for example, Syria, and uh, that was the subject of my earlier book a few years earlier called The Dirty War on Syria. Syria has effectively rolled back the influence of the US and its proxies in the region. It's still subject to an occupation by US, Israeli and Turkish troops. But the, the al-Qaeda groups that were supported by the West um, through their proxies in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, and Turkey, for example, have been progressively rolled back. So in that sense, Syria as an independent state forms part of the resistance. But then you have also militia in certain uh, certain countries, such as Palestine, such as Lebanon, such as Iraq, and to some extent in, in Yemen also, which have been fighting the, the front groups for for Washington. I mean, the war on Yemen, for example, is led by Saudi Arabia. At different times, it's involved the UAE and, and Qatar. But really, in this respect, Saudi Arabia is acting as a proxy for the US. Really, Saudi, the Saudis, and to some extent, too, also the Israelis are proxies for the US presence in the region. Let's remember, Britain created Israel as a sectarian state in the center of the Middle East region there. And it was inherited in many respects by the US in the 1950s. So it's very important to recognize that the presence of Israel is on the one hand a Zionist project, but on the other hand, it's also a, a foothold for the, the Anglo-American powers in the region. What do you consider the key to a definitive defeat of Washington's plans to subjugate the entire region? Well, that's the subject of this book, The Axis of Resistance. I say that it's not possible for any one of those states, not even Iran, which is the largest and strongest independent state in the region. Um, it's possible that there were other big states that might have played that role, but Egypt a long time ago lost its political will. Turkey has got its own project at the moment and is integrated to some extent to NATO. They're the other big states of the region. But Iran, even Iran by itself, cannot defeat uh, an ongoing assault by the big powers and by NATO, basically. But combined together, it's quite a different sort of thing. And the Middle East, in many respects, is very backward in, in terms of regional integration. We've seen strong regional projects in almost all the continents, not strong in Africa, it has to be admitted, but strong counter-hegemonic regional projects in Latin America, um, regional groupings in Southeast Asia, and now the China-based regional groupings, the European Union, the attempts by the US to create its own regional groupings, which have had mixed success. In the Middle East, the division of the peoples and the weakness of the states and the peoples there is underlined by the fact that there are these enforced divisions. And of course, an Achilles heel of religion has been used against the peoples of the region there to divide people further. So the principal tactic of the big powers has been to divide peoples and in any successful resistance to an imperial project, the unification of people in some way. In this case, I'm saying that a regional integration, that means in security terms, you pointed out the, that that already exists to a degree, showing the military leaders of Syria, Iraq and Iran in Damascus. 
but also a economic and infrastructural regional integration. I think that's very important for the future of an independent region in, in West Asia. According to your book, you see Iran as the undisputed leader of a, quote, axis of resistance to foreign domination and Zionist expansion. Is this because Iran is the only country that has not yet been attacked by the U.S.? Or what are other important reasons for Iran's leadership role? Well, it's not that Iran hasn't been attacked. I suppose it hasn't been frontally attacked for some time since the 1980s, but there's a constant type of dirty war going on against Iran in what people call fourth generation war or hybrid war. Wars these days are based on propaganda, on economic war. There's a ferocious economic war against uh, against Iran, a ferocious propaganda war. On terrorism, there are terrorist groups, assets that the US has to attack Iran. But I think the main reason for Iran's importance and the obsession about Iran is not that it's a a hybrid religious democratic system. You know, it has a, uh, a religious hierarchy and a democratic parliament and president um, combined. Not that, um, whatever people think about religion in states, uh, and there are many Middle Eastern states that don't like that idea. It's because Iran is genuinely independent. Um, it gained its independence from the US with the Islamic Revolution, where the religious forces dominated. Um, it's got great capacity, not just that it's a big country with a large population, but it has tremendous industrial capacity, tremendous human capital, and it has political will. It's able to carry out its programs. It's able to industrialise. It's able to educate its people. It's able to develop public health systems and so on. Um, so uh, in that respect, Iran is able to defend itself, and that is the main reason why the US hasn't carried out a direct frontal attack, because they're rather concerned about um, Iran's capacity to respond. It's developed its military technology in the, in the last few decades. Indeed, it's stronger now than it's been any time in the last 40 years. But on top of that, it also has a commitment to its regional independent allies not because they are Islamic states, because none of them are, really. All of Iran's close allies uh, have quite different political systems to Iran. Um, Palestine, for example. Iran arms the Palestinian resistance. It gives concrete support to Palestinian resistance against the ethnic cleansing going on in Palestine. It supports, of course, uh, the Islamic resistance in Lebanon. But uh, it's a Shia Islamic resistance in South Lebanon, which is broadening into other communities. But in Palestine, there's hardly any Shia. So you can't say it's a sectarian thing, the support that Iran gives to Palestine. That, of course, is one important reason why Israel hates Iran. Then it supports Syria as an independent, uh, semi-secular state. Syria is probably the most secular of all of the independent states in the region. It supports Iraq. It helped Iraq defeat ISIS when ISIS was fanned by Saudi Arabia and other allies of the US and the US indirectly and sometimes directly also supported ISIS. It was Iran that was the greatest friend to Iraq at that time. And that's why, of course, so many Iraqis came out in the, that commemoration of the, the death of those national heroes, Mohandas, the Iraqi leader, and Soleimani, the Iranian leader. So Iran is also constantly accused of helping Yemen. And indeed, it does in some respects. We may not be able to say in great detail, all of the help it gives to Yemen. But effectively, Iran is 
helping uh, all of those independent states. And that's the main reason why uh, the, the politicians in Washington call it supporting terrorism, because it supports the resistance to Zionist expansion in Palestine, because it supports the independent states under attack in the region. I'm speaking with author and researcher Dr. Tim Anderson. Today's show, The End Game in the Middle East. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, when you talk about Iran's support for the other independent states in the Middle East, uh, does Iran actually have troops uh, stationed around? That's the impression that I have, and that they have um, actually uh, military support for lots of these uh, states. Is that correct? Generally, they don't have troops. They do have some special forces, I believe. They certainly um, fund militia. For example, I've seen in Syria, they fund regional militia from uh, Syria itself, also from Iraq, also from Afghanistan. They help logistically. They have command assistance. For example, the late General Soleimani was active in in the command structure uh, from early days of the war against Syria. He was active in Lebanon um, against the Israeli invasions uh, when they were expelling Israel in 2000 and the invasion of 2006. uh, so generally speaking, they don't send troops, but they would send technical advisors and uh, they do fund regional militia, volunteer militia. Um, and of course, they assist with technology, with defence technology also across. For example, uh, it's not a secret anymore. It's been made public that uh, some of the um, the technology, the rocket technology, for example, that's supplied to Lebanon and probably to some extent to Palestine, is actually made in Syria. So it's subcontracted effectively. It's it's Iranian technology. So there's a great degree of close collaboration between those states, and, and that's why Israel and Washington uh, are quite determined or have been quite determined to try and break the nexus there. It's why also, by the way, uh, the, the occupation of Syria at the moment is focusing on those border areas between Iraq and Syria because Washington is very concerned that very good relations and good transport and infrastructural and defence communication and collaboration will happen across those borders. I mean, that's why there are US troops in Al-Tanf in the south of Syria and up in the northeast corner and in Deir Ezzur. It's not just about the oil. It's about trying to prevent what some strategists in uh, Israeli and US circles call an Iranian land bridge. What they mean by an Iranian land bridge is they are very worried about the infrastructural links and integration between Tehran and effectively the Mediterranean, whether it's Beirut or Banyas or Latakia. But that is to say road, rail, communications, oil and gas pipelines, that whole the whole thing there, which includes defence collaboration. And that would mean a very strengthened so-called axis of resistance up against the borders of Palestine. And that, that is what the Israelis of course, see as a great threat. I see. So it's not so much Iranian troops all over the Middle East. It's more logistical support and communication, a technology, that sort of thing. Yes, and command, and command, and uh, that's right. You write that Russia's role within the axis of resistance is compromised by its relationship with Israel. Is Russia an ally of Israel, and if so, why? 
Yes, Russia has its own rather unique relationship with Israel, and that's a lot to do with the um, a couple of things, but the links to um, important Jewish networks within Russia, that is to say at an elite level, at a state level, and also the very large emigrate community that left Russia in the 90s during that Great Depression when the Soviet Union collapsed. You know, the there was a huge economic depression. There were terrible collapse in social indicators in Russia and something in the order of about a million Russians and other Eastern Europeans went to Israel. Not all of them were recognised as Jewish and they were put through some conversion process, which I believe is still ongoing. But nevertheless, there are these historical ties between Russia and many of the, the European Jewish communities and, and Israel. So uh, Russia has been, uh, under President Putin in particular, has been very careful to try and isolate Israel from the conflict in Syria. That is to say, Russia and the Soviet Union before them had a commitment to Syria as an independent Arab Republic, and they have supported it for a long time. And that's usually been a reason for the US to stay its hand in terms of intervening in Syria. And you see what they feared has come to fruition um, in the last few years. But nevertheless, there is this ambiguity. And then people sometimes say, oh, well, Russia is betraying Syria or, or they, Russia is saving Syria. But in, in reality, um, it's something in between. Russia has been a very important ally. Similarly, they've had very few troops on the ground in Syria. They've had people doing demining and some special forces. But by and large, it's been Russian air power in Syria. And by and large, they've tried to um, keep, uh, try and prevent an open conflict between Israel and Syria, even though Israel has been sending missiles into Syria many, many dozens of times in recent years. Russia has tried to isolate uh, and, and, I suppose, contain the level of the conflict there, which is understandable in many ways. Whereas if we look at the what are called the axis of resistance countries, Iran, Iraq, Syria, resistance in Lebanon, for example, and Palestine and Yemen, they are very clear that they want the racist state in Israel dismantled. They want a democratic state. Of course, the Palestinians, some of them are still talking about two states. But let's say the more, let's say, viable option of a, uh, a one democratic state where Palestinians have equal rights. Um, in some form or other, the resistance countries want the dismantling of this racist apartheid state in Palestine. And uh, Russia is not yet committed to that goal. Uh, you've mentioned the delicate role that Russia is playing in Syria. What what role does Russia play generally within the axis of resistance? Well, Russia, very early on, when it introduced its air power into Syria in September 2015, that is to say it escalated its involvement in response to an escalation from Turkey, a new invasion into Idlib, and an escalation from the east in Syria, that is to say a, an invasion of um, Daesh, of ISIS, from the eastern side of Syria and from Iraq into central Syria. Um, Russia increased its role there, but of course, I guess, conscious of the Soviet role in Afghanistan, President Putin made some distinctions. One was that the ground war was being fought by the Syrians. After all, the difference with Afghanistan was that the Syrian Arab army had defended 
the country against very large-scale terrorism supported from outside with a lot of foreigners uh, on its own, effectively, or with help from Hezbollah in Lebanon, but by and large on its own. Now, when the Russian Air Force came in in September 2015, um, President Putin tried to define that role, that they would keep the Syrian control of all of the liberation of ground areas and so on, and that Russia would support with air power, basically. So it came in in that way, uh, but it came in in coordination with Iran. That was very important. In fact, it's been said that uh, General Soleimani was one of those, perhaps the main player who played a decisive role in convincing the Russians that they had a strategic role in the region, that is to say, to prevent the new Middle East project. Uh, and so it's no accident that when Russia increased its role in Syria, it also began open relations, uh, stronger military relations with Iran and with Iraq too. Notice that the communications headquarters for Russia's anti-terrorism operations were based in Baghdad with the collaboration of, um, of Baghdad and Syria and Iran, even though the US forces were also in Baghdad at that time. The US had re-entered Iraq at Iraq's invitation when it seemed like ISIS was overrunning Iraq. So the Russians um, were conscious of the fact that they were not just helping a traditional ally Syria, but they were dealing with the, more or less using the same terms of intervention as the US, that is to say, to fight terrorism. But in the case of Syria, of course, they were invited and the US wasn't. In the case of Iraq, both were invited. In the case of Iran, only Russia was invited there. So uh, they didn't confront the US ideologically, but rather used the US's own language of the intervention was based on not an open invasion and beyond this sort of the humanitarian pretext there'd been for for an intervention, but an intervention to protect the people of the region. Um, but Russia went about it in quite a different way to the US. So certainly the escalation of Russian involvement in the region um, was uh, wider than just Syria. Of course, it stopped short of um, any confrontation with Israel. Um, it, it kept some fairly severe limits to try and distinguish itself from the, the, the former uh, operations in Afghanistan. What is the U.S. and Israel's greatest fear regarding the Middle East? That is to say, what would most alarm imperialist plans? I think uh, what they themselves have described as this Iranian land bridge, that you have a very strong infrastructural and human commercial defense alliance stretching from Tehran through Baghdad, through Damascus to the Mediterranean. The integration of those countries, the integration of the so-called axis of resistance countries into a strong regional alliance, I think that's their nightmare, basically. And as I said, I think that's why, even as Trump has partially retreated from Syria and most of the proxy armies have been defeated, um, there is still this presence, and it's all to do with the the eastern border of Syria, the western border of Iraq, in the northeast uh, near Kamishli, in the east near Derizur, in the south and Al-Tanf there, they want to play a blocking role, a spoiling role there, so that the relationships between Iraq and Syria, and therefore Iran, Iraq and Syria, are not strengthened. Um, that's the great threat that Israel sees, and no doubt Israel has told the Trump administration and the Obama administration before that that's what they fear most. And so that 
that blocking role there, I think, I mean, for example, um, Iraq has, Iraq and Iran, I believe, offered to share their oil, their electricity with Lebanon when Lebanon had crises. Lebanon has its own political problems with that. But you can see there are enormous possibilities of cooperation between those neighbours. And the US is just doing everything possible to block uh, neighbourly cooperation. I think that's why their, their greatest fear is really integration um, of the region, of the independent countries, necessarily led by Iran, because Iran is, Iran is the biggest state, the greatest capacity, the strongest political will, the strongest defence system. Um, that integration is the great fear. I'm speaking with author and researcher Dr. Tim Anderson. Today's show, The End Game in the Middle East. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is some of the evidence that shows that all of the terrorist groups in Syria and Iraq were backed by the U.S.-led coalition in attempts to destroy the independent Syrian state and to destabilize and weaken the new Iraqi state? Well, if you'd followed the Iraqi, the Iranian, the Syrian media for the last nine years, that um, you'd find a lot of evidence there. But because in Western audiences, there's this great reluctance to read foreign media, or rather we're told we can't read this. This is to do with the regime propaganda or some such thing. So really during this 20 years of 21st century war in West Asia, Middle East, we've been trained. We can't look at the Russian media. We can't look at the Chinese media. We can't look at the Iraqi, the Iranian, the Syrian media. We can't read the Venezuelan, the, the Cuban media, and so on. All of these barriers have been put up to people. But fortunately, when it comes to the Syrian war, we have a series of admissions now about the relationship between Washington and terrorism there. I mean, Trump himself said it, I think, in 2016 during the, during the campaign that ISIS was created by Clinton and Obama. Actually, he was right. Um, but he's maintained the legacy rather than, rather than destroyed it, even though ISIS is you know, morphed into other sorts of groups. By the way, I was in northern Syria in November and I was with some Syrian army officers and two Kurdish officers. They were fighting together, though they have different aims. And I said to them, what's the difference between the Free Army, they call the Free Army what used to be called the Free Syrian Army, and Nusra, the Al-Qaeda group, and ISIS or Daesh. And they said, nothing, there's no difference. It depends who's paying the most money. They go backwards and forwards. They all agreed to that. And I said, what about proportion of foreigners in those groups? And he said, no, no, there's no difference at all, really. Um, and then one of the Kurdish officers showed to me uh, on his phone and sent to me on WhatsApp a video of the Free Army uh, groups hired by Erdogan to invade northern Syria protesting against conditions they were experiencing and wanting to go back to Idlib, which is controlled by HTS, Nusra or Al-Qaeda. But we have a series of we have a series of admissions from the US itself. Um, the most important ones, I suppose, were in 2012, the DIA, then led by Mike Flynn, um, said that this was, I think, August 2012, that the insurgency in Syria was led by the extremists, by the Muslim Brotherhood, the Salafis, and ISI. At that time, ISIS didn't exist, uh, the Islamic State in Iraq. And they wanted to create a, a Salafi principality that was a concept in eastern Syria, um, what, you know, what became what they called the Islamic State. Um, and the DIA commented at the time, that's exactly what the US and its allies want. 
so as to isolate and weaken Damascus. So U.S. intelligence admitted in uh, mid-2012 that what was happening under, first of all, the insurgency was led by extremists. It wasn't by moderate rebels. Second, there was the aim to create a, a Salafist or fundamentalist extremist uh, religious state in eastern Syria, and that suited the U.S. down to the ground, basically. Then after that, we had, for some reason, in 2014, when ISIS became very big in both Syria and Iraq, um, particularly in Iraq, and Iraq was struggling. Remember, the, the Iraqi army had been reconstructed, so-called, by the US military, but they were in such a weak state and the US hadn't delivered on a lot of the hardware, in particular F-16 fighters, that uh, ISIS took over one of the major cities and was threatening Baghdad. And so the Iraqi administration at that time was very desperate. And uh, they called out for help at that time. But soon after the US was invited uh, back into Iraq to fight ISIS, there were reports in Iraq that, no, it was actually helping ISIS. It was doing a lot and it wasn't really defeating ISIS. And ISIS wasn't really being rolled back until the Russians got involved a year later on. During that time, the head of the US military, the then head of the US military, Martin Dempsey, and Lindsey Graham on the Defence uh, Committee, and the Vice President, Joe Biden, all admitted that their major allies were financing and arming every single group in Syria so as to overthrow the government of Bashar al-Assad. In other words, they, they admitted on behalf of their close allies, their major allies, that ISIS was backed by their major allies and uh, then pretended, I think Biden's defence was, he then pretended, well, we can't really, we can't seem to persuade our allies to do something different. Of course, that's nonsense because the US military, the US government, when it sells weapons to other states, has an agency that controls the use of those weapons, the servicing of those weapons, the on-sale of those sorts of weapons. It's controlled very carefully. So you can't just buy a million dollars of weapons from the US military and then give it to some random terrorist group. There are controls that they have there normally. So it's clear that when the Saudis buy so many billion dollars of weapons uh, and they give them to one or other of these jihadist groups, al-Qaeda groups, the US knows exactly what's going on there. How would you describe the final stages of the failed war on Syria? What is happening in Syria as we speak? Well, I just published an article about two weeks ago called Syria, Washington and the Kurds um, because I'd visited northern Syria and I'd been studying um, the history of the Kurdish movements there. And um, the main conclusion I come to there is that it's a very strange situation. It's a transitional situation going on there because the U.S. is steadily withdrawing. Uh, Syria is steadily reclaiming its territory. It's doing that in the north and it's in the northeast and it's doing it in the northwest where the larger battles are going on at the moment with the, the, the hardcore effectively of the al-Qaeda groups in Idlib now. And you see a big, a big uh, cry about, you know, Idlib, about children being killed there. Really, there's it's a very cautious, um, steady onslaught on the al-Qaeda groups that have been controlling Idlib there. Um, so uh, similarly in the south has been largely liberated uh, and the major problems that, that Syria faces are those around the areas where there is direct foreign occupation. As I said, the US in the east and south 
Israel in the Jolan in the south and Turkey in large parts of the north there. So although Syria has reclaimed some hundreds of kilometres of border now with Turkey, um, it's a strange sort of situation. There is a combined operation, um, well, there's a three-way, actually, collaboration in northern Syria. There's a centre, a military centre called Arim, Arima, which is just west of Mumbij, which I visited a couple of months ago. And there, the Russians are there in a sort of a, a monitoring, sort of deterrent sort of role. And the Syrian army and the Kurdish militia, which were previously administering Mum, and are still administering Mumbij and some other areas like Kobani or Ain al-Arab, they are collaborating with the Syrians against Erdogan and the Islamist groups that were have been brought across from Idlib or have been fostered in Turkey by, by Erdogan. So it's a complicated situation with more or less in a holding pattern there, but nevertheless the situation is not resolved. And one senior Syrian general, a major general, said to me that they know they're losing, we know they're losing, but they keep on doing it because they can't admit defeat and they want to punish the Syrian people, basically. Uh, they, I think Trump's instinct about Syria was it was a losing war he was inheriting from his predecessor. And I think instinctively, not through any good intentions, but because he was some sort of pragmatist, he didn't want to inherit a losing war. Um, he stayed in there to the extent that he has, I think, because the other sections of the of of the the military-industrial complex, if you like, or the deep state, uh, have, have convinced him that he has to maintain the overall project in the Middle East or Iran will take over. So, But nevertheless, there's been a, a steady retreat, a steady pullback of US operations there. And of course, also, you could say the mask has dropped really because most of those proxy armies have been defeated. And it's only because of the presence of uh, Turkey, the US and Israel that there is still those big zones of conflict there. So it's a complicated transitional situation in Syria, made worse and more depressing by the fact that there is now virtually an economic blockade on that entire region. That is to say, Lebanon is now suffering serious economic blockade from US actions largely, which it's enforcing on other players on the Europeans. The Europeans are trying to get around it, but the Europeans have been rather too dependent on the US economy there. Now the Russians and the Iranians and the Chinese are going to work out some new financial uh, mechanisms to get around there. But there are these economic sanctions or economic war against Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and of course, Palestine and Yemen are physically blockaded, you know. So the economic war there is a very uh, a terrible, depressing sort of thing, which is causing terrible casualties, particularly amongst children in, in places that are very hard hit, like like Yemen and Palestine. Oh, yes. The economic sanctions are vicious. I hadn't thought about uh, economic sanctions on Lebanon that you mentioned, but of course that makes sense because they're they're putting sanctions on the whole area. Well, Lebanon and, and Iraq are similar in the sense that the U.S. has is um, unhappy with the the rising popularity of the resistance forces, Hashid al-Shabi in, in Iraq and Hezbollah in Lebanon, yet those groups have gained enormous credibility for providing the effective defence to the country in the case of Iraq from, from ISIS, from Daesh, in the case of Hezbollah from Israel and also from Nusra and Daesh there. So 
they have widening coalitions across different religious communities supporting them now. Hezbollah effectively um, is, the, is, is one of the senior partners in the Lebanese government and Hashid al-Shabi, who one of the major leaders of which Trump just assassinated, is has tremendous standing, tremendous influence in Iraq now. So the problem is they tried to impose sanctions on political parties or political groups. And then, of course, those groups have allies. And so the sanctions widen and effectively you have a uh, type of targeting of the whole financial system of the country. And Lebanon has indeed been going through a great financial crisis in the last few months. Yes. And I believe the United States has even threatened uh, to cut off uh, access to the New York Federal Reserve Fund's that belong to the Iraqi state if they try and get the United States military out of Iraq. Isn't that right? That's right. And that's also particularly severe for countries that depend on the U.S. dollar. The Lebanese government, for example, had used the U.S. dollar as a parallel currency there. I'm not sure to what extent the U.S. dollar is being used in Iraq. I've only visited Iraq once, but um, they have that they they are integrating all of their all of their capacities, their propaganda arms, their diplomatic arms, their economic arms, uh, and their proxy armies. Basically, that's why they call it a fourth generation or hybrid war. I'm speaking with author and researcher Dr. Tim Anderson. Today's show: the end game in the Middle East. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what about the white helmets in Syria? What is your assessment of the white helmets? Well, the white helmets, the white helmets were, were an organisation set up specifically for the Syrian war. Um, they were created by a British mercenary who was said to have committed suicide in Turkey. He may have been murdered, but anyway, he died in Turkey just a few months ago. A British mercenary, mainly funded by the British government, and then later on also to some extent by the US government and perhaps the Danish government, one or two others. But most of the money was from the British government and secondly, the US government. Now, that was an organization set up specifically to provide a PR front for and supposedly some medical support for the jihadist groups themselves. One good thing about the liberation of Aleppo was that people were interviewed, like for example, by the the British independent journalist, Vanessa Bealey, when they came out of uh, Eastern Aleppo, and she asked them specifically, you know, what had these this group done? Because the White Helmets were only ever and still are only ever uh, present in those parts of Syria occupied by the Al-Qaeda groups, by Jabhat al-Nusra, now called HTS, uh, organisations prescribed as terrorist groups by the United Nations Security Council. They said to her that those groups never helped them. They helped the armed groups and they carried out little propaganda exercises. They would grab their children, run up and down the streets with their children, pretending that they were saving children. Um, perhaps they were providing some medical support to armed fighters and their families who were uh, who were attacked and wounded and so on. But by and large, they are PR group. And you would see, I've documented this in the book to a certain extent too, you will see there's some now very good online archives, including one by a think tank in Russia, but uh, documentary photographic archives. There's one that has, I think it's something like 70 or 80 photographs of individuals in the white helmets. In one picture, they're wearing their white helmet uniform and, and helmet. In the other picture, they're wearing their Al-Qaeda uniform and holding a weapon. So the same people were coming and going between the armed groups. And of course, 
the documentary evidence also showed that they were involved in executions. They were involved in jihadist celebrations, waving the al-Qaeda al-Nusra flag at uh, different military victories and so on. And the al-Qaeda leaders themselves, uh, Muhassani and uh, Jabir, um, had praised them as silent soldiers of the revolution. They meant the Islamic revolution, the al-Qaeda revolution. So there's a, a mass of a mass of evidence to show that the White Helmets were funded by the British and US government to work hand in hand with the Al-Qaeda groups. Nevertheless, um, those same governments also funded a whole lot of uh, quote-unquote media activists, um, one called Bellingcat, there's a number of other ones too, to keep trolling the social media with enhancing or uh, amplifying the voice of the White Helmets and attacking the individuals who were exposing the very close, intimate links that they had with the armed groups. Have the White Helmets engaged in human organ trafficking? Um, Syrians tell me that, yes. In fact, I took pictures of one hospital which was burnt from the inside in Aleppo, and um, there have been some reports on that. Um, that's what I've been told by Syrians, some Syrians that were in, uh, in Aleppo. Now, of course... There's a very big demand for human organs. It's a very lucrative market. And when you have war, you have dead bodies. But unfortunately, these groups um, have also had at different times lots of um, living uh, kidnapped victims. They've kidnapped at different times many, many hundreds of people. They, they kidnapped many from Aleppo when they left Aleppo. They kidnapped many in Hama when they retreated into Idlib, for example. They kidnapped, they had many thousands kidnapped in in East Ghouta, and only some hundreds came out alive. That was a huge depressing thing for the Syrian people, many who thought their family members were held as kidnapped victims in East Ghouta, and only of the 4,000, I think it was, that they expected only about 200 or, or so came out alive. So those armed groups which have um, publicised the execution, throat-cutting of people in public, haven't had any compunction in the past to uh, killing their kidnapped victims or using them, sacrificing them in faked chemical weapons stunts, for example. So the organ trafficking, certainly there was a fertile ground for it there. And they say that this one hospital in Aleppo, whose name escapes me at the moment, was one of those that was used to, of course, in this case, to deliver the, the organs into Turkey, into the international market through Turkey. You note that in a diplomatic move, Russia persuaded Syria to give up its actual chemical weapons stock, and indeed that stockpile was uh, destroyed in 2014. You write that every single claim of chemical weapon use by the Syrian army was a fabrication, that this was an extended weapons of mass destruction hoax. So there no. is real evidence then that all of these claims were not true. All of them, except the ones against uh, the al-Qaeda groups themselves. The first use of sarin in Syria was by Jabhat al-Nusra in a part just uh, west of Aleppo. Uh, and that was, uh, the indeed, the Syrian government called the UN weapon inspectors to Syria um, in August 2013, precisely to investigate that attack in Karnal Asal, which the UN later concluded had killed uh, Syrian soldiers and civilians. They didn't attribute blame, but you know who's fighting Syrian soldiers, so you can you can join the dots there, basically. Initially, the UN uh, investigators had no brief to blame either side. Later on, the US and Britain and France managed to turn it around a little bit. 
when that when those when those weapons inspectors were there in August 2013, at that very time that they were in Damascus, the armed groups complained of a sarin attack in the Scooter area, which they controlled. Now, it was independent experts that discredited that particular claim, just as it was independent experts that discredited the later claim in 2017 in Kun and the later ridiculous claim in Duma in 2018. They were independent experts, US experts like, uh, for example, Ted Postol, a forensic weapons expert who was a consultant to the Pentagon, um, like Seymour Hirsch, the investigating journalist, like Scott Ritter, the former chemical weapons inspector. In the chapter on the, of that book, Axis of Resistance, what I say is you can cut to the chase on these chemical weapons issues uh, simply by eliminating everything that's said from the warring parties, from the US and its allies, from Syria and its allies, from Russia, and look at the independent experts. And the independent experts all point in one direction. They were fakes. And now we've seen with the last one, the Duma one, which was back in the area where the first major one occurred in the East Scooter in, in August 2013, that whistleblowers inside the UN's uh, OPCW, the Organisation for uh, Control of Chemical Weapons, um, say that the leadership um, doctored the report, kept out things, censored it, things that were inconvenient, and there's basically a mutiny, a relatively substantial mutiny within the UN's chemical weapons organisation to say that they had skewed their Duma report to... And so there's a huge debate going on about that now. But I, my comment on this is really, we were fooled about WMDs in Iraq. Why were the same people fooled so easily less than a decade later about effectively what was another WMD scandal in Syria? They kept doing it for years and years and years. And maybe it's a credit to the strength of the propaganda arms these days that they could really fool people, keep that story alive in the corporate media and statements of governments, whether they believe it or not, for so long, for so many years. How can they maintain these fictions for so many years? Could you discuss how describing the war in Syria as a civil war is nothing but aggressive war propaganda? Yes, I think it is war propaganda. And the problem is we have now, well, I think the war on Syria has uncovered some weaknesses in the entire Western media structure, including social media, including agencies such as Wikipedia. I believe that Wikipedia probably still lists um, the war on Syria as a civil war. Um, um, so to call it a civil war, though, when you have fighters coming from over 80 countries, when Syria itself is illegally occupied by Israel, the Jolan area, by the US all along the east, the northeast, the south, by Turkey in the north, I mean, it, it's extraordinary, really. The, the, the groups in Idlib only have their supplies because Turkey is supporting them. If Turkey were genuinely acting against the organized terrorist organizations banned by the UN Security Council, it would have sealed off Idlib. It would have cut all of the supply of weapons. But no, the Turkish army is in Idlib supporting those al-Qaeda groups. You know, I've seen the weapons. I've seen the American weapons in Syria. I've seen in, in Palmyra the, the American Hummers and American weapons that ISIS left behind there. You know, it's very obvious that uh, the US and NATO countries and Israel in the south were funding this and supporting this from the very beginning. After the U.S. assassination of Iranian General Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, 
the deputy head of an Iraqi militia at the Iraqi International Airport, my sense was that these murders could lead to a general uprising in all of the Middle East. How likely do you think this sort of outcome could be? Well, I think they they are leading to an uprising, but it's an uprising that's led by governments, basically. The Iranians have said recently that Trump hasn't learned his lesson, that the strike that they did on the al-Assad airbase in Iraq was uh, a first round um, to drive the U.S. out. But now you have uh, what that assassination did, assassination of two great national and regional heroes, Mohandas and Soleimani, was unify the people of Iraq, which was one of the barriers to uh, the axis of resistance. The, the, the U.S. had successfully created a very weak system and a lot of rivalry and corruption in the Iraqi system, which prevented them from coming together. But you saw within days after those murders that the Iraqi parliament um, backed their prime minister, well, interim prime minister, because they're going through a change there, um, to uh, demand that the U.S. leave the country. And, of course, the Trump regime said, no, we're, we think we think we're a force for good, we're staying here. So openly defying the, the sovereign government of Iraq. Um, so things have changed in Iraq there. And Iran, of course, has delivered one blow, which, by the way, um, was an important blow. Uh, it, it's, uh, details have only leaked out about that because the U.S. really put down a a lockdown on information. They've refused to release any information. But now we know from the Iranian side and from some of the Danish soldiers who were part of the, the operations in that air base and have now withdrawn from Iraq to Kuwait, um, that there was indeed this very powerful strike on the base and that they had warning of it, which is one reason why there was um, very few casualties. Another reason was that they didn't strike the barracks, they struck the command centres. And another thing was that the strike um, wasn't intercepted. None of the missiles were intercepted by any air defence there. So they managed to jam or fool the air defence systems there sufficiently. So it struck a blow to the US presence in Iraq, but it wasn't sufficient to remove them. And you will see now that the objective of the leading resistance forces in Iraq and, and from the government of Iran in particular, that their objective is now to expel the US presence from the entire region. They have now adopted that in the wake of the assassination of Mohandas and Soleimani as a, as a, a combined objective and uh, the resistance in Lebanon, you can add to that too. So things have shifted significantly there and we haven't seen the end of the, of the conflict there. If the Trump, if the Trump regime tries to remain in Iraq beyond the will of the Iraqi people, I think we're going to see significant acts of resistance in the very near future. So it sounds like these assassinations are further helping to coalesce this axis of resistance. I think that's right. I think that's right. That the, the entire operation has been forging its own worst dream. Effectively, they are forcing the peoples of the region to come together for their own defence and it will end up being, it's a bit like the Israelis. They want everything and they're going to lose it all. You know, they want, they, they blocked the possibility of a Palestinian state for 72 years. They're creating an apartheid state. That's going to make an intolerable situation internationally and they won't be able to sustain it with any amount of propaganda and the whole thing is going to come under attack just as the apartheid South African state came under attack. 
that's the problem with this sort of overreach and aggression, inability to cut any sort of deal. Tim Anderson, thank you very much. You're welcome, Bonnie. been speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson. Today's show has been The End Game in the Middle East. Dr. Tim Anderson is director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies. He was for 20 years an academic in political economy at the University of Sydney, and before that taught at several other Australian universities. He researches and writes on development, rights and self-determination in Latin America, the Asia-Pacific, and the Middle East. He has published many dozens of articles in a range of academic books and journals. Recent books include Land and Livelihood in Papua New Guinea, The Dirty War on Syria, and Countering War Propaganda of the Dirty War on Syria. Today's show was a discussion of his new book, Axis of Resistance, Towards an Independent Middle East, published by Clarity Press. Visit the Center for Hegemonic Studies at counter-hegemonic-studies.net. That's counter-hegemonic-studies.net. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GMB Radio. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divide we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? 